I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the prophetic book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1, and beginning with verse 1. And what we're, my intention today is to look at this whole chapter. Ezekiel uh, chapter 1, beginning verse 1, and it really goes down to verse 28. And I know that seems like it's, it's a lot of material, and there is a lot of material. And about the only thing we're going to be able to do is get a panoramic view of really what's going on here about this vision that Ezekiel uh, sees, because it's, it's almost impossible for us to spend the kind of time that we need to spend on it to think about it, but also to, um, for this, even if I did spend the time of, of talking about what it is that he saw, at the end of the day, it's really hard to tell you what he actually saw. In fact, it's interesting, in my study this week, I got a real laugh and a kick because I was reading all these commentaries about this section, and everybody was all over the map about what everything represented it. And finally, one of them was sensible enough to say that the meaning of it, in a lot of ways, has been lost. And it's hard for, it's hard for us to think about what it is that Ezekiel saw because he saw this vision, and he's just trying to capture the best that he can with the words that he has to describe seeing God high and lifted up, sitting on his throne uh, in the heavens. And then he put it in parentheses uh, for implausible um, description, see this person. So he, he notes that, listen, if you want to get to what some of these symbols mean, look at this guy, but it's implausible. He doesn't really know what he's talking about, but if that's what you're interested in doing that. And so my intention for us today is for us to think about, you know, as we start off this new year, to think about what it is that we need to see. And really across the United States and across the world, pastors are taking the opportunity to give on this first Sunday a vision sermon. And I'm not necessarily that kind of guy. The only vision I want you to have is a vision of God. And so that's really what our focus on the new year is. And as it is every Sunday, as it been the whole time that I've been here, it's for us to have a vision God, to see God in all of his glory and all of his beauty through his son Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. And the way that we see God as a New Testament church is we see God in his word. And I have made this as compelling of an argument as I can at numerous attempts that we as New Testament Christians living in this age are not being shortchanged and being able to see God. We may think, I wish we could be like Ezekiel and see all that Ezekiel did. I wish we could have been there in that Palestinian region, in Jerusalem, in Galilee, in Nazareth, where the disciples got to see the Lord Jesus Christ, whom John says, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son. We are not shortchanged this morning because we see God in his word. In fact, it came from the lips of Jesus himself when he said, it is better for you. It is to your advantage that I go away because if I don't go away, then the Holy Spirit won't come. And so at the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God proceeded from the Father, proceeded from the Son, and has been indwelling in the church for the last 2,000 years. And so this vision that we're going to look at in the context of God's Word, we're not being shortchanged. We can see God in the fullness of His glory and His beauty in His Word by His Spirit. So let's begin, start with verse 1. And really, verses 1 through 3 gives us the context of, of the setting, if you will, of when Ezekiel saw this vision. It starts in verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the 30th year 
in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Shabar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. And on the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest. Now I want to stop right there. If you know, back in verse 1, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And he connects that with the word of God. The word of God expressly came to Ezekiel. The priest, the son of Buzi, the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chabar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. And that word there is important. The hand of the Lord was upon him there. And then look in verse 4. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming. And out of, and out, uh, uh, out of the north great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself in brightness was all around it and raiding out of its mist like the color of amber out of the mist of fire. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. And, and that this was the likeness that they had and the likeness of man. Each one had four faces and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of man were under their wings on their four sides. And each of the four had faces and wings. And their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but when each went, they went straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side. And each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were the faces. Their wings stretched upward. Two wings of each one touched one another, and the two covered their bodies, and each one went straight forward. And they went wherever the Spirit wanted to go, and they they did not turn when they went. And as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning. And the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like the flash of lightning. Let's stop right there. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we move forward. Father... We pray and we ask that you will work in the context of our service in this moment as we look at you and as we have this glorious vision of you through your word. And Father, I pray that you will help us to leave this place seeing you and your glory and your majesty and your beauty through your son Jesus Christ by your spirit in a way that we've never seen you before. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we begin, I want us just to think that the context of this is extremely crucial and really important as we move forward in trying to discover what it is that Ezekiel actually saw and why he saw what he saw. If you'll notice in the very first three verses that it tells us the timing, the setting of when Ezekiel received this vision. Now, one of the reasons that it's important is it points to the reality that God reveals himself in real history. That he reveals himself in the context of space and time. And the specific time is important for Israel and Ezekiel's history up to this point. In fact, the vision came at a very crucial time in Israel's history. 
Ezekiel lived at the end of the Davidic dynasty that sat on the throne in Jerusalem beginning with David. And David was the key king. All of the kings were to, to be like David. He was the one who, that the people yearned for to return once again. And they were measured by whether they ruled in the ways of their father David or whether they did not. And so Ezekiel lived near the end of this time. And he was born during the reign of the last reforming king of Josiah. And despite all the good from Josiah's reign, judgment was still impending and would not be overturned. During Josiah's reign, true worship was restored. Yet in this context, God makes this statement from 2 Kings 23 and verse 35 when he says, And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house which I said, my name shall be there. Now I want you to remember that. My name shall be where? It shall be there. Now this statement is important when considering the meaning of the exile. God was going to remove the people from the place where he said, my name shall be there. And for God to say that his name shall be somewhere was to mean that God's presence was going to be there. When God put his name on Jerusalem, when he put his name on his temple, when he put his name on his people, that was essentially him saying that his name was there, or that he himself was there. And then following the reign of Josiah, the the dominoes of judgment began to fall. First, Egypt disposed of Josiah's son, Jehoaz. Disposing from the throne, which lasted only three months. Then a few years, two more then a few years later and two more kings later, Babylon besieged Jerusalem in five ninety eight BC. And the king of Babylon took all the treasures from the temple, and then he carried into captivity the kings and the princes of Israel, leading craftsmen, elite soldiers, and priests. And all of the captives walked seven hundred miles to Babylon. Only the poorest remained in Jerusalem which included Jeremiah. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel were, were contemporary. Jeremiah still had his ministry there in, in, uh, in Judah, and there Ezekiel had his ministry in captivity among the Babylonians and among the captives that were, that were there. So at this point in history, all is not well. The most gifted people in Israel are exi- exiled to Babylon, including the priests. They are 700 miles away from the land and the temple where God had said, my name shall be there. Things are even worse back home. Babylon has installed a puppet king, the uncle of the rightful king. And he is corrupt and he is weak. In five years, this puppet king, Zedekiah, he will lead a failed revolt against Babylon. And then Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed in 587 B.C. In fact, the very last thing that Zedekiah sees is he sees the soldiers killing his son. And then they remove his eyes. Now, to make matters worse, not only is Ezekiel and some of the leading people in captivity in Babylon, back home, everything that's fallen apart under this, this corrupt and weak king, in five, in five years' time from this point, everything will be gone. Jerusalem will be demolished. The very foundations of the temple will be ripped to shreds. And there will be nothing left of that temple. There will be nothing left of that place where God says, My name shall be there. But it does get worse because Ezekiel, at this point that he receives this vision, is now 30 years of age. 
This means that he has entered the first year of eligibility to serve as a priest in the temple of the Lord. Now that he was 30, now that he could serve as a priest, what can he do? He's not in Israel. He's not in a temple. There is no temple for him to serve in the presence of Yahweh. Instead, he is in this foreign land surrounded by gross paganism and immorality. In this climate of devastation and cultural decay, Ezekiel is given a vision of God's glory like any other in biblical literature. As he is out by the river with the other captives, he looks out into the distance and he sees the heavens were open, as we see in verse 3. And it's possible that what he saw was a violent storm approaching. But as the storm moved closer and closer, it was something else. The invisible barrier between heaven and earth was lifted, and Ezekiel was allowed to peer into the unseen realm. And there's a single word that captures the amazement of the, of the, move, the, the moment more than any other, and that's there in verse 3. The Lord's hand was upon him there. It's the word there. The Lord's hand was upon him there. The whole purpose of the exile was to remove Israel from the place where God said, My name shall be there. And there was Jerusalem and the temple. But here Ezekiel is in Babylon for five years, and the Lord's hand was upon him there. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is appearing, speaking, putting forth his mighty hand there in the land of exiles, and cleanliness, idolatry, and despair. Ezekiel, along with his fellow captives, believed that they were far removed from God's presence in the Jerusalem temple. The vision that follows is a demonstration that the transcendent God and all of his glory and all of his beauty and all of his majesty, the transcendent God is an imminent God. He is a God who is there. He is a God that is near and close to his people. He is not confined to a heavenly temple. He's not confined to a city. He's not confined to that temple in Jerusalem, but God is there for his people. So wherever you go, Whatever situation you find yourself in, God is there. And then as we enter into verse 4, we see the description of this God who is there. There in Babylon where he's not supposed to be there. But God is there. And so the vision begins with a mighty storm. It's foreboding and it's forbidding. It's surrounded by flashes of lightning and the roar of thunder. The brilliance of the sight is described with words like brightness, radiating, color of amber, and fire. And the presence of God is typically described in the language of thunderstorms because the most demonstrative display of sheer raw power is thunderstorms. We know that living here in Oklahoma, that there's nothing quite like a thunderstorm, that all of a sudden it's a sunny day, and then from the distance you see the clouds rolling in, and then there's the thunder, the lightning, the rain, and the wind. And within an instant, things can just be completely obliterated with a tornado. And so there was nothing quite as powerful as a storm. And so many times that the Bible describes God in that kind of way, that God is there in the midst of the storm. And in fact, many times, God's glory is manifested in that way. For instance, when God led... His people out of Egypt, and Moses took them to Mount Sinai, and then God's glory descended there on Mount Sinai. He manifested himself in the form of lightning and clouds 
and flashing and thunder and quaking. And his power was so great that the people shrink back. And they did not dare come near to the mountain. So there's a storm that's approaching. And in that storm is the very manifest glory and presence of God. And then as we move on and we think about verses 5 through 21, I read most of that going all the way down, talking about the four living creatures. And so out of the approaching storm, what he observed is a mobile throne or a chariot transported by four living creatures. And the four living creatures had the appearance of, of a man. Each one had four faces, human, lion, ox, and eagle. They had four wings, and the soles of their feet were like hooves. And we later learn in Ezekiel 10 the identity as cherubim, angelic creatures stationed in God's very presence and guarding his holiness. They are the same angelic creatures that God stationed to guard Eden, and their images were placed on the Ark of the Covenant. The wings of the cherubim were stretched out on the Ark, covering the mercy seat, because it is the location where God was said to reside, and it was in that place that atonement for sins was made. The cherubim functioned as symbols for God's presence. So the very presence of the cherubim in the, in the vision is a signal that God is there. Because the cherubim guard his presence. They guard his holiness. They are there in his presence. So when Ezekiel sees the cherubim, it is a sign that God is there. So not only do we have this description of what they look like, but we also have this description of what they are doing. In fact, one of the very important things in this vision is movement. Movement is an important focus. And we are told that the four living creatures, that they moved straight forward and they did not turn. And the movement is further highlighted in the description of what appears to be wheels of the chariot or a mobile throne. In fact, if we look down a little bit further, we can see how it speaks about uh, these, these wheels. It says in verse, uh, verse 16, well, actually verse 15, it says, Now, as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a will was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. The appearance of the wheels and the workings was like the color of beryl, and the four had the same likeness, and the appearance of their workings was as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel, or a wheel within the wheel. And so we're seeing this idea of movement that is being conveyed. Not only are the, the angelic creatures, not only they moving, but there's also wheels that are turning in their movement. It's not just one wheel, but it's wheels within wheels on each four sides of the living creatures. And so it really describes the wheels of what might be a chariot or a mobile throne. And one of the strangest characteristics of the wheels is that they are full of eyes that we see in verse 18, speaking of the fact that the throne of God sees everything. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And the movement emphasizes that God's throne only moves in his direction by his sanction. In fact, if you look back in verse 12, you think about how the angelic creatures are moving. And it says, each one went straight forward. They went wherever the spirit wanted to go. And they did not turn where they went. And then look in verse 20. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went because the spirit went. And the wheels were lifted together with them, for the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. And so they moved by the very directive of God. They did not move on their own. They moved where God told them to move. And when God moves, we find that it is swift and all-encompassing. 
fact, that's what we see in verse 14. It says, and the living creatures ran back and forth in the appearance like the flash of lightning. So it's very swift. It's very, it's very fast. And so it signals the fact that when God moves, it is swift and it's all-encompassing. The creatures are stationed at the four sides of the divine chariot, each facing a different direction while moving in a straight line. They are pointed toward the earth's four corners and simultaneously travel north, south, east, and west. So the idea is the fact that God's presence, it blankets the whole earth. God's not just stationed in one place, that God is stationed in all places at all times. It's one of the very characteristics and realities of who God is. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. And so that's the point that his equal vision is trying to get across, that God is there. He's not just there in Jerusalem, there in the temple, but God is there even in Babylon with Ezekiel and the rest of the captives. And he shows that he's there in a very dramatic and real way when this storm comes and then the barrier between heaven and earth is peeled back forth and then Ezekiel is allowed to see all of this glorious image, all this imagery, all of these uh, descriptions of God and the reality of who he is so that he could know truly and fully that God is indeed there. Uh, we look further and we consider these four living creatures and this chariot with these wheels. This, it's not an ordinary fixed chariot, but it moves in any of the four directions without deviating from its path. So it tells us that God is on the move. He is even in a God-forsaken place like Babylon. He's even in a God-forsaken place like this period that may be in your life. You feel like this is God-forsaken. God is not here. God is not present here. But the imagery here reminds us that God is present everywhere at all times wherever we may be he's never confined he's never living in he's never absent but always with his people even when it doesn't feel like it he is the god he was there and then we move forward to the the center point of the vision in verses 22 through 28 i think it's important for us to read all of this to see what's going on now there's something that's going on here in the background that's not necessarily noticeable as you're reading it but the closer that Isaiah gets to the vision, the more that the language of this text is very garbled and um, it's inconsistent and there's, it, it's just out, it's out of everywhere. And so we, we have to imagine what he's seeing here. He's seeing this in real time. And he's doing the best that he can to express what he's seeing with the limited vocabulary. Because what he is seeing, you take every language that we have in this world and you combine it together and there's not going to be one word that you can find or, or, or phrase of words or an essay of words that's going to be able to adequately explain what he's actually seeing. So you'll, you'll, in fact, if you move forward in the text as it gets to the center division, you'll notice there's just kind of a staccato-like likeness, appearance. Because he's not saying, this is what I saw. He said, this is, it's in the likeness of this. It's like this. It's the best way that I can describe it with the language that's used that I had before me. And so as he begins in verse 22, and he's moving forward, and he's moving closer to the very center of this vision. So he, he, he looks up, he sees a storm. And when he sees the storm, he sees the four living creatures. Then he sees the wheels below the four living creatures. Then he looks up even higher. And when he looks up higher... He sees in verse 22 the likeness of the firmament or the expanse above the heads of the living creature was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. 
and other the firmament, their wings spread out straight toward another. Each one had two, which covered one side, and each one had two, which covered the other side. When they went, I heard the noise of the wings, like the noise of many waters, like the voice of Almighty, a tumult, like the noise of an army. And when they had stood still, they let down their wings. A voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they went down their wings. And above the firmament was their over their heads was the likeness of a throne and the appearance like sapphire stone with the likeness of the throne was the likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. And also from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw as it were the color of amber and with the appearance of fire all around within it. From the appearance of his waist downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire with brightness all around like the appearance of rainbow and cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around us. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So notice, notice the Siscato light, the appearance, the likeness. And, and so the closer he gets to the center of this vision, he's seeing something beyond his comprehension. It's indescribable, it's uncontainable, and he's just doing the very best that he can to describe what he's seeing. So as he looks up above the chariot, he sees the likeness of the expanse. A platform was dazzled with awesome brightness. And this is the crescendo of his vision. And accompanied with what Ezekiel sees is the sound from the angels of the living creatures like a war of a waterfall, the shouting of a great army. But the sound he hears is not necessarily the sounds of the wings flopping, but it's actually the voice of the Almighty. Now we are at the heart of this vision. And on this incredible celestial platform is a throne made of sapphire. And the one sitting on the throne is the likeness of man. And he's not just any man. But he's surrounded by the, the glow of fiery luminance. The one like the appearance of man is none other than God himself. And Ezekiel is unable to say exactly what he saw. And all he can do to the best of his ability. And the descriptions available to him is qualified with the word likeness and appearance. So what does he see this man doing? The one in the appearance of man and the one in the likeness of man. He sees him sitting on a throne. God sits on his throne and God reigns. Now think about what this means for his equal. He's been in captivity for five years. And what appears to be the king of the world is Nebuchadnezzar. Who was a pagan an ungodly king, and he's living in this land of vast immorality. And then back in his homeland, is not even the rightful king. It's a puppet king by the name of Zedekiah. And what does he do? He probably feels at loss for any conviction or any stability at all. I don't have a king back home. I don't have a king here. And then when he looks up and he sees the throne. And he sees that God sits on his throne. And he reigns and he rules. I don't know about you, but I think that speaks of something that near and dear to us. And the reality of the life that we live today. As we consider the climate of our culture and the climate of our, culture, our country. That it seems like it's being governed by a bunch of buffoons. And that things are just out of control, out of whack. Who's in control? Who's ruling? Who's reigning? And so I call us to look in the text 
and to see that God sits on his throne and he reigns and he rules. He sits on his throne and he reigns and he rules. There is one king. And his name, God, his name is God in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this for, at least for Ezekiel, was extremely comforting to look up and to see this king. Now there's, there's some imagery here that I think is important and we shouldn't overlook that there's a similar image in the New Testament. That Jesus and the disciples had came to a crucial point in his ministry. He leads them up to Caesarea Philippi. And then he asked them, who do men say that I am? And some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah. And then he looks at him and says, who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then from that moment on, for the next step, he takes him up to a mountain. And before Peter, James, and John, Jesus is transfigured. And we see this imagery. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shined like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Same description that we're seeing in Ezekiel. And I can just draw a straight line here. And say that it's, a re- it's speaking to the reality that Jesus Christ is truly God. And Jesus Christ is truly the king and in control over all things. And so although it's indescribable, it is unmistakable that what Ezekiel saw was the glory of the Lord. Interestingly, with all the images that preceded, it is only when he sees the one sitting on the throne that he falls down on his face. Understanding the significance of this moment is critical, particularly considering that Ezekiel's role as a priest. In Israel, the prevailing belief held that God's glory resided solely in the temple of Jerusalem, and from their perspective, they were 700 miles removed from God. They were 700 miles removing from the place where God's glory was said to reside. Yet there, by the river Chabar, God revealed his glory. God was there even in Babylon. He is the God who was there. So notice the very last thing that we see, the very last phrase in verse 28. It says, So when I saw it, I fell on my my, my face, and I heard a voice of one speaking. When he saw it, the only thing that he could do was to fall on his face and worship the living God. Now, I I want to take you to a couple places before we finish, I want you to turn to me real quickly to Ezekiel chapter 48 and verse 35. Ezekiel 48 and verse 35. And I, I want to just give you just a little bit of where we are when we get to this point. The book of Ezekiel ends with another vision that happens some 20 years later. Some 20 years later. So the, this prophetic ministry of Ezekiel basically spans for 25 years. So in chapter 1, he's five years into his captivity. Jerusalem is still there. The temple is still there. But here we are, fast forward 20 years later in chapter 48. And by this time, Jerusalem and the temple have been destroyed for 15 years. It's all gone. And all the people are still exiled. There's no hope of return in sight. And in this vision, he sees a new spectacular temple and city where the glory of God dwells. Yet, in Ezekiel 40 and 40 through 48, where he's describing this new city, this new Jerusalem, there's something that's conspicuously missing from the description of the city. 
and it's the word Jerusalem. From chapter 40 to chapter 48, he never mentioned one time the city of Jerusalem. And this is deliberate. It's an intentional. And it bookends, and it's, 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 it bookends in where we started. And then we get to chapter 48 and verse 35. And finally, at the end, he gives the name of the city. Notice what it says in verse 35. All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name from the city that day shall be the Lord is there. The Lord is there. And when you think about, if you read verses 40 through 48, and you try to think about the configuration of the temple and the city, it, it doesn't meet reality. And so the whole point of this book is to show the people that God is there. In Babylon, far from their land, 700 miles, their king is no longer on the throne. The temple is no longer there. There's no longer worship there. But God is still there. And it's really a reality that we need to grasp in our own lives. That wherever we are, whatever we're going through, God is there. And it's a reality that we need to embrace that when we gather here on the Lord's day, the Lord is there. He's here. And God showed that he is the Lord who is there more than any other way in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. In fact, John says, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten son. In the Lord Jesus, God is there. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the Lord is there. And as the church gathers, the Lord is there. Listen to the words of Jesus from Matthew 18 and verse 20 when he talks about the church. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among you. Now, I don't know if you're getting that, but back in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, when Moses says, whom shall I say sent me? And he says, you say I am sent me. So when you look back in Ezekiel 48 in verse 35 and you see that it says the Lord, all caps, is there, it's saying I am is there. And here Jesus is telling his church in Matthew 18, 20, I am there. The Lord is here. Just as Ezekiel saw the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God there, that same God is here today. And may we see him through his word, by his spirit, and know that wherever we are as God's people, the Lord is there. Let's pray.